Velkommen til en podcast fra Bethlehemskirken på Nørrebro. Vi er et mangfoldigt og farverigt fællesskab, som ønsker, at Gud må forvandle vores liv og den verden, vi er en del af. Tak fordi du lytter med. Det er en model af en kirke. Jeg har faktisk det i Nederlandet. Og jeg var fascineret af det. Jeg så det på en high street. And it reminded me of a passage from the Acts of the Apostles, where, uh, with alarm, people said, speaking of Christians, these are the people who are turning the world upside down. And because the Church of Jesus Christ is in a constant uh, battle on, on this planet, too often it's the Church that gets turned upside down. And uh, I love that opening song that you led us in, about put your church on fire. Uh, because the next line, of course, is if the church is on fire, then we can heal the land and the, and the world in which we move through. And if you've got any concerns for revival, or evangelization, or mission, you can't escape the fact that if I am thus inclined, then I also have to take seriously the renewing and the refreshing of the church to which I belong. And it's not a static thing, is it? The church needs constant refreshing and renewal. <clears throat> I like to think that what this Two Restore program is about is precisely part of that process. Because when the church is on fire... One back. One back? Yeah. Thank you. She's my watchdog, keeps me righteous. <laughs> Thank you, Benton. So uh, here's a list of what the Two Restore program is for. It's to enable the church to know its own stories and their legacies or outcomes. It's to facilitate a disciplined listening ethos or process. Uh, and listening for me is one of the most powerful resources for renewal in this world. I mean, you believe in a listening God, don't you? I mean, why else do you pray? You pray because you're convinced that somebody out there is listening attentively to what you're saying. And you won't be wrong in that. And if God is listening at heart, and we want to be as like God as we can be, we have to cultivate a listening heart ourselves. Two Restore is also about empowering the church to take appropriate ownership of its own stories, to celebrate those which give life, and to confess those which take away life and to work towards the renewal and flourishing of the church. There you go. Uh, I've been running this program for about six years now, full-time, when I left ACORN. And we offer two programs to churches. We offer what I call a weekend program, and what I'm doing here with you is some of that program, not all of it. Just giving you a taste of it, and hopefully... <coughs> It would be beneficial. But we also have a longer program, and there's no timetable to it, because we offer the possibility of everybody in one church being able to have a one-hour listening session. Let me give you an example. Uh, we worked with an Episcopal church in Birmingham uh, in the United Kingdom about four years ago now, and we listened for one hour, confidentially, to 340 people. And we did it inside two weeks. So if you do the maths, uh, we were listening to people in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. We did shift work listening. 
I had a team of 24 trained listeners who came from all around the United Kingdom. We stayed in a monastery, and the, the brothers in the monastery did all our food for us. And people just came from the church, and we went through a series of questions which we're going to invite you to participate in after coffee today. And the questions are all aimed at discovering amongst ourselves what we think is the story that makes our church our church today. When we listened to those people, um, we took notes of all those listening sessions, not of everything people said, but of the main issues that they raised. They wrote all that down and gave them to me. So I would go home every night to my room and I would read all these notes. And believe me, reading 350 notes, answering the same questions, can be very challenging. But out of that, I write down what I call a profile report. I don't interpret, I don't put any spin on it, I just literally write down what are the main subjects that everybody keeps talking about. The good stuff and the bad stuff, if you like. And I write it up, and I send it to my listening team at the end of the time and say, is this an accurate reflection of your listening experiences? If not, correct me. Is there something I missed out, something I should put in? And invariably there is, so I edit it, send it back to my team, and if we're okay, I then send it to the pastor of the church, and usually the bishop or the moderator, whoever has commissioned us to do this work, and I say to them, this is the story of your church. Are you happy with it? Uh, is there any matter of accuracy you want to challenge? And sometimes people don't like what we've written in the report. There was one, do you understand the expression church warden? Mm -hmm. Public officer. <laughs> I know it's different here, because you're a state church, aren't you, the Lutheran church? You're sort of tied into... Well, not the politics, but the uh, administration uh, of your communities. Okay. It's about the building, the facilities, not the spiritual. Okay. Well, in our country, the church world has more than the building to consider. We also have it. They also mean the school. Yeah. It's really noting the needs of the congregation and making them clear to the pastor. This can sometimes degenerate into controlling the pastor, of course. And you have to be careful about that. Excuse me, this keeps going off. That's the trouble with iPads, isn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. We wrote a report for one church, and in it the church warden took great offense. It was a lady, and she said, you've written down here in your report the position of church warden has become toxic in the life of this church. The reason we said this, incidentally, is that when the elections for church warden came around, nobody wanted to be the church warden except this woman, who had been doing it for 12 years. She was very efficient, incidentally, but she used her position as church warden to control the pastor, and the previous pastor had had a nervous breakdown and had left the ministry, and to this day has never returned to it. So nobody wanted to co-pilot the role of church warden, because we have two in each church. 
And without mentioning names, I had to be honest. Because everybody was writing about it, or talking about it. So I just said, the post, not your toxic, but the post of Church Warden has become toxic. Nobody wants to touch it. And she said, everybody will know it's me. And I said, everybody already knows it's you. But <laughs> I'm trying to write it in a way that makes you reflect on the circumstances rather than saying you're bad. Do you understand the difference? Yeah. So you have a chance to reflect on it because what I've written is the truth. Nobody wants to be a church warden with you. Surely you've noticed that over the last two years. And of course, she's not an idiot. She had. And when we came to the, what I call the confessional bit, which will be the workshop this afternoon, I do hope you come to that. Um, we invited people. First of all, is there any individuals here who want to share their own personal responses to the story of the church? She immediately came out to the front of this church. And she said, I've been caught up in many things in my life. And I've realized that I've become very controlling and I want to apologize to the church and I want to resign. So now we have no church wardens, it seems. And she said, and I hope that you will pray for me. And all the people she considered to be her enemies, what she called the evangelicals, <laughs> they were the people who spontaneously came out and, and hugged her and prayed over her and showed her the love of Christ. Four months later, the election of the church wardens came around once again. And the bishop of that diocese phoned me and said, this woman was probably going to stand for re-election, even though she's had this change of heart. I don't think she should be church warden. I think it would be good for her not to be for a while. So will you phone her and tell her she's not to stand for election? I said, bishop, it's, that's not my job. You're the bishop of the diocese. Why don't you phone her? And he was so honest with me. He said, um, I'm frightened of her. <laughs> She's a very strong character. She said, will you do it for me? I'm telling you the truth. Well, this is the Bishop of Coventry, incidentally, of the time. A well-known theologian in our country. So I telephoned this lady. She's no fool. Most people do have intelligence, I have found out. So when I phoned her, she said, I know why you're phoning me. Do you? Yes, she said. You don't want me to stand for re-election, do you? And it's got nothing to do with me in that sense. And I said to God very quickly in prayer, silently, have you got any good ideas? What should I say? And be honest and keep my integrity with her. And this thought came to me and I said, Alice, um, you can give this church something that nobody else can give it. Only you can give the church this gift. What's that gift, she said. And I said, your resignation. <laughs> and she did. She said, if you honestly feel, I said, I think it would help, but it's not up to me. It's up to you and God, surely. I never told her what the bishop had said. I didn't think that was fair to her. I felt like putting pressure on her personally. I was just trying to be honest, because I could see her abilities, and I could see her, com her, her confession as well. Well, she never did stand for re-election. Two other people, however, did. And life moved on in the life of that church. 
Seven years later, I was in Coventry at a retreat house. <clears throat> and one of the church, former church wardens was the chef at this retreat house. And she said, you know, we've just had our elections in that church again for church warden. And Alice stood for re-election because everybody in the church insisted she should stand. She had become this amazing, caring person. She was transformed through the process. And we insisted she stood for church warden. So she had a landslide, yes, to be the church warden uh, in this fairly tiny church uh, just outside of Coventry. And it was a, a wonderful turnaround. Now all this comes from, as I say, we write this report that just summarizes the issues, uh, the main issues raised by all the people that we listen to. I have found this an invaluable resource uh, in renewal strategy in the lives of the church. <coughs> Excuse me, got a bit of a cough today. You will be surprised how few people, how few pastors, and this is not about you, I'm speaking very just in case you're thinking, why did I bring this man here? It's not about you, Martin. I'm speaking very generally. I mean, he paid my lunch yesterday, so he's got to be a good man. <laughs> But uh, I found many pastors, and I include myself, because I shared that with you last night, did not know the story of their church. And when I found out the, the, the main building blocks of life that shaped my church, I understood their present day activities and attitudes. It was shaped to some degree by what they had gone through in the past. So it's worth knowing some of the major points in the life of any church. This is going to get very tedious with me doing this, because I get talking too much. You've probably noticed that. <laughs> so let's move on. Uh, incidentally, just to give you hope, I, I do have a watch, so I know what time it is. I'm hoping to end this first session by 10.30 for coffee time, and then come back at, say, uh, 11, give you a good half hour for coffee, and we'll go from 11 o'clock to 10 to 12 for the second session. The second session is mainly you working, not me talking a lot. What a nice change I hear you say. I heard that, Simon. Thank you. Um, you'll be, thank you. So you'll be doing most of the work in the second session. And it's, it's important to the two restore process that you do this work, however ordinary you think it's going to be. So please stay with us and uh, let's follow this through. So, why does Jesus speak to churches? And there's two chapters in the book of Revelation where he's doing nothing else but talk to churches. In chapters 2 and chapters 3. There are seven churches, as you know, listed there. You'll be relieved to know I am not going to give you an exposition on all seven churches. In fact, not even on one of the churches, really. But I would like to read... Revelation chapter 2, just get me ready Mark, Revelation chapter 2 and the first seven verses. We're just looking at the church in Ephesus, which incidentally no longer exists. Just to get a snapshot to answer this question, why does Jesus speak to churches? So let me read it to you. And notice the the pattern of this, because it's repeated six more times, more or less. To the angel 
of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at the beginning. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. And as you can see from the slide I've put up there, why does Jesus speak to churches? I think that this is an audit. I think this is a health checker on how are we doing as a church. All seven have roughly the same pattern of address, which involves these three basic parts to it. Jesus summarizes the story of the church. Out of that comes challenges and consequences to the life of the church. And he concludes with an exhortation and a promise. Those are the three pieces of the audit that he brings to each church. Five of those churches, whatever their gifts and abilities, are challenged to change the way they're living. That's what the word repent means, doesn't it? It means to turn around, to transform, to change, to take on a different dynamic. And two of the churches are not challenged to repent. And yet they have their own difficulties. In fact, one of them is the Church of Philadelphia, which has its own struggles. It's probably the smallest of the seven. But it's okay as far as Jesus is concerned. And I want to unpack these three things with you. But there's a little interesting piece to begin with, isn't there? <clears throat> what do you think is the angel of the church? I mean, why write to an angel? Can you imagine Jesus saying to the angel of Bethlehem Church in Copenhagen write. I mean, does Jesus write letters to angels? It's a little bit stretched, don't you think? But if you go behind the Greek word for angel, it's the word angelos, which is very similar to the word preach the good news. Did you know that? The word for preaching the gospel or preach the good news is you, angelos the good words, the good message. And so some scholars say the word angelos can mean angel, the thing with the wingspan of a jumbo 747, or it can be a messenger. And the function of angels is what in the Bible? Mainly, is to bring God's message to people. I mean, Gabriel did overtime 
around the birth of Jesus, did he not? You know, he comes before the birth, he comes at the birth, he even comes to Joseph who's wondering what to do and tells him that he's to name this child and marry this woman, and he does. That's why perhaps later on Gabriel is described as an archangel. Maybe he got promoted for all the hard work that he'd been doing. But the essential ministry uh, of, uh, of the angelos, the angel in this context, is the messenger. So to the messenger of Bethlehem Church, right. And who's that messenger then? Well, if you push the word a bit further, uh, this word angelos, it doesn't just mean messenger, one who's bringing you some news or headlines. It also means the person responsible for carrying the story or message of the church. And who is the one in Bethlehem Church that's been given the authority and right by God to carry and hold the story of your church today? Who is it? Well, it's you. Because you're the pastor of this church. Uh, and that's the great challenge that all pastors face. That they're responsible to God for holding the welfare of their community. And that's the passion of our hearts anyway, is it not? Is to see our churches flourish and to serve its need to grow in the way that God wants it to. And so everything that comes from this is not about angels and the colour of their wings and all the rest of it and how many you can stand on a pinhead. Everything that comes next from this moment is all about the story of the church. So it fits to me that the angel is a reference to the person responsible for the welfare of the church's story. I'll get used to watching this soon. Okay. So the first thing I was saying is summarizing the story. Did you notice that phrase in verse 2 of chapter 2? I know your deeds. Am I pushing it out of shape in saying we could interpret this to say, I know your stories? I know all about you. I know what makes you tick. I know what you're good at. And I know what you're bad at. I know the stories and the network of them that make up your church. And he challenges us to have the same knowledge. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 2, speaking to the church of Pergamon, he slightly changes it and says, I know where you live, which doesn't sound very comfortable to me. It's normally a kind of mafia hitman who tells that to you. I know where you live, and I know where to find you if I need to find you. And so here's Jesus challenging the church about its story. Let me just get this. <coughs> but he does it in a particular way first thing is he summarizes what is there in your church story that needs healing and what is there in your church story, in your church story that needs to be celebrated did you notice that first thing he says is I know your deeds your hard work your doctrinal excellence so when jumped up self-appointed apostles come into your congregation and say, I've got God's special anointing. If they're a phony, you've got the ability to see through it. Your doctrine is pretty sharp. You know, you must be Calvinists as well as Lutherans. Uh, you can't tolerate wicked people. Your ethics are good on the whole. 
you live a responsible life and you've held on. It's been hard going for you, but you have persevered and endured hardships for the name of Jesus and you've not grown weary. <coughs> That's not a bad list, is it? For any church. I mean, to be quite honest, I'd feel pretty good if Jesus came and said that to my church. And I, I want to, if, as long as it's the truth, of course. But I'd feel really good of that kind of affirmation uh, in the life of our church. And celebration, of course, is not to give us swollen heads, but humble hearts. Because all the good stuff we're capable of anyway is only because of God's love and grace at work in our lives. Is that not the truth? He does this every time in all seven churches. Maybe not as much detail, but it's there. He says something that tells you that God's still alive in this church. And you're not to forget it, but you have to learn to acknowledge it and celebrate it, because it also tells you what the gift ministries are. But then he moves on in his theme and says, but, always <coughs> oh, a but, isn't there? Yet I have this uh, against you, so it's in verse 4. You've forsaken your first love. That fiery joyfulness you had at the beginning when this church first got started, even though it was tough going. Uh, that overwhelming love that touched people from all levels of society. Whatever it expressed itself as, Jesus is far more concerned about the, if you like, the, the quality uh, of our relationship with him rather than the output and industry <coughs> that comes next. And so he challenges this church to rediscover the love that it has lost. So can you see how he summarizes? This is what tells you you've still got life. Nurture it. Celebrate it. Build upon it. Diversify from it. And here's the other stuff that undermines it and threatens it. And he challenges us uh, to take equal reaction to it. Then comes those challenges and consequences. <coughs> There's the challenge to change direction. That word repent, which I mentioned earlier. Get back to that first loving. I don't know about you, but we live in a fallen world, don't we? And living in a fallen world always means friction at some level in everybody's life and in everybody's church life. And it can be wearying, can't it? It can be tiring. And so there are times when we need to make sure that we run into our lives that kind of restoration rhythm that we need. One of the sad statistics in my country uh, that somebody did a survey on the life of pastors in all denominations in our country. And what they found out was this. After 10 years of being appointed a pastor, coming out of theological college, 15% of all those people were no longer pastors. And all 15% of them never went back into the pastorate ministry. The top reason for that is the attrition rate that they experience being a pastor of a church. <clears throat> the very first church I ever did this program in was in Southampton, in the south of our country, when the bishop phoned me up and said, I have a tiny church, he said, it's only got about 80 people in it. Uh, he said, and... It's not an old church, it's about 70 years old, it's got a fairly modern building, but the last four pastors 
have all resigned ahead of time with mental health issues or breakdown or related issues to, to breakdown. And each of them has reported that the reason for this is the hostility they found in the life of this church. And I am now refusing to put a new pastor in that church until we find out what's going on here. And I'd like you to be the troubleshooter. I thanked him profusely. <coughs> and uh, this was a very early one for me, so I'm learning on the job, as we say. And because um, I've been directing a Christian listener program, both nationally and globally through ACON at this time, and especially in Ireland, and in places like Rwanda and Burundi, working with people who've been pretty um, horrified by their own experiences, and a lot of uh, anger just underneath the surface of people's hearts, I found the best way to access it and work with it was through listening rather than telling. So I thought I would try a bit of listening. And so I, I went there, I explained to people, I've been appointed by the bishop to come and explore what's going on. So I'm quoting the bishop, he wants to know what's going on. Let me tell you, I don't have any preloaded agenda. He has not given me the names of the bad people in this church who I'm going to come and sort out. I don't know who you are at all. But I do know this, that one of the repeating issues it keeps cropping up in the life of this church is you lose your minister prematurely. And we'd like to find out what that, that's about. They're all different people. They were old and they were young. They were single, they were married. They had no children, they had many children. They were very different people, but they had the same encounter in this church. So it's something about the way we live as a church. Uh, one of the church wardens says, we don't need you, we don't need this. You know, why, why are we paying good money for something we don't need to pay for? It's so encouraging uh, to hear these kind of comments before I'd even started uh, the work. And uh, you have to stand your ground. So I, I did say to this chap, well, the bishop has said, you're not getting another pastor until you do this process. So shall I go back to the bishop and tell him, the church warden refuses this process. And you can take responsibility for never having a pastor again in the life of your church. Are you happy for that? And of course he wasn't. He was just being defiant. So I said, look, I'm not here to find out who the bad people are. I want to discover what's the power at work here that ends up with a wounded pastor who feels they can't cope anymore. Because I know you're caring people. I know you have a different range of opinions. But there's something going on. And I think you owe it to yourself to find out what it is. So I did my listening piece and I made my notes. And what began to emerge was a deep-seated anger in the life of this church. You see, it, when it first started, it was given a promise by the bishop that it would be made up into a bigger church and become the main church in that part of Southampton. <clears throat> but the demographics and industries of Southampton changed. The population didn't come to that part of Southampton. It went to that part. So this church never did become the main church it was promised it was going to be. And they were really angry about it. But tell me something. Who can the church take its anger out upon? To whom can the church voice its disappointments and angers? Well, it doesn't do it to the bishop. He's in his castle far away. 
So they give it to the one the bishop sent. And just in case you think this is far-fetched, Jesus did say there was a man once who had a vineyard. And he sent his servant to tend that vineyard because it wasn't working well. And they beat up the servants till in the end the father said, I'll send my son. I'll respect my son. And they killed the son. So the escalation of violence, because the situation wasn't being properly addressed, got out of control, which is Jesus' prophecy to the nation of Israel. If you don't turn and repent, it gets out of control. And that's what was fueling this church, this anger, which became bitterness. Because anger never stays neutral, does it? If we don't work through it and bring it to resolution, it's got to go somewhere. And it usually goes underground and grows into bitterness and rage, and it affected everybody. And when they saw that, they realized that they needed as a church to repent of its disappointment and its bitterness, and that is what they did. And one of the earlier ministers or curates of that little church in Southampton was a man called Desmond Tutu, who went on to become the Archbishop of Cape Town, and uh, amongst other things, is now the president of Christian listeners in South Africa, because we've partnered with him for many years. And when he heard the work that uh, God had done in that little church, uh, he wrote me a letter saying, I did my best, but it was not good enough. I felt a total failure in my ministry. I was only the curate, but when I left that church to go back to South Africa, I was fighting in my mind, should I stop trying to be a pastor? Because I was obviously no use to those people. It seriously challenged me. And for a time, there was a time when I might never have moved on and, did, and had what God did in my life. It's interesting, isn't it? Where little seeds are sown uh, in that church. And I, was, I was written to by one of the people who wrote me a letter of apology for the hard time he gave me when I was there. Because, you see, this was what was fueling the life of that church. And I'm happy to report that a new pastor was placed there, and they've still got the same pastor 15 years later now. So I think that church has turned a very important corner in its life. So when we look at <coughs> the issues as they arise, Jesus says, what is the that tells you I'm still here? Celebrate it. Nurture it. Grow it. And what is it that actually threatens it? We need to change direction. And I thought I would put this second picture up uh, just to keep the Desmond Tutu link going because that's been there. You okay? I have some more to you. One other piece I want to bring out is that in summarizing the church's story, or pathology, as we can call it. There's also another piece that crops up, not in all seven of these churches, but in some of them, and that's, how does your church relate to the community it serves? And in the Ephesian case, we're told that they uh, live this righteous life, they can't tolerate wickedness, but when you go through some of the other churches, you have references, don't you, to the synagogue of Satan in that town which remains unopposed by you, and you shouldn't allow it to continue. And other failures to transform the community of what it's part. In my church in the Midlands that I shared with you last night, 
I told you I discovered the story of how it began as a town in the forcible removal of 500 miners, do you remember, from their roots way up north. I went round all the other pastors in the town, the Catholics, the Salvation Army, the Baptists, why not? Uh, we had no Lutherans to go and look up. And I said to them, do you have this kind of problem in the life of your church? And I explained mine. And they all said yes. And do you remember those marches for Jesus? Do you remember in the 90s, I think, was their, their peak? And this was in the 90s, coming up to the 90s, because I, I left that church in 91. <coughs> Instead of doing the march for Jesus when the season came round, we decided to do something different. We prayed very much about it, and we decided we'd do a walk of confession. So we sang our hymns, we went down the same route through the town, we were as joyful as you can be, but we printed these little cards. And we didn't want to get morbid. We didn't want to drown ourselves in negativity and darkness. But we wanted to hold it truthfully in the light. So we wrote on this card, God has called the church to serve your needs to flourish. That was on one side. And on the other side was, please forgive us for not loving you as Jesus has asked us to. We printed a few thousand of these cards, and we had young children and old, older people walking beside the procession of all the, the churches. We'd be about a thousand of us going through the town. It was quite a big town. Giving out these cards to anybody and everybody uh, who happened to be there. Nobody came to us later on and said, what are you talking about? You're a brilliant church. It was like the people who lived in that town resonated with what we were saying, because they felt it too. So when we got to the town square, and we'd finished our, our, our talking about Jesus, just as if we were doing a march for Jesus, but when we came to the end of it, uh, I was asked to do the tricky, <coughs> complex bit. And so I, I was the... the the chair of the council of the churches in the town back then. Uh, they gave me their trust, for which I was very grateful. And so I said to this, these people, and there'd be a mixture of atheists, other faiths, uh, committed Christians, and everything in between. And I said to them, we've made this confession honestly as we can, and we want to commit ourselves to a new day of loving and learning and moving on. This town was founded on oppression. We all know this. It's a matter of public record. Uh, and somehow that's got in the way of us serving you well. And we want to change. So I said, if you would like to help the Church of Jesus change, I'm going to ask you to do something that maybe you've never done in your life before. And you may think you should do because you don't go to church. But I'm going to ask you just the same. I said, I'm going to ask all these pastors... And there's about 20 of us on the platform. I'm going to ask all the pastors to join me. We're going to come down there where you are. We're going to come right in the middle of you because they're all standing around us. And I'm going to ask you to lay hands on us. Silently. You don't have to say a word. And if you can't lay hands on us, lay hands on someone who's laying hands on someone who is laying hands on us. If you'd like to do that. And can we just have one minute? Well, you're in whatever way you want to do it, are saying to God, bless the churches in this town, 
to live up to their calling. Just that. Would you do that for us? Because that is what's on our hearts to do. We want to change, and we want you to help us to change. So down we came, and they parted like the waters from the Red Sea. <laughs> and into the square we went, not to be executed, I hasten to add. And I'm sure there was a mixture of questioning and that, but you know, the photographs that I could show you from that day show you a sea of hands from the shop doorways right into the square of people doing this. And for one minute, no traffic, no buses went by, everything stopped in the centre of Coal Town that day as people prayed over us. And I can't tell you, nine o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit fell, our congregations doubled, and people chucked money at us as if there was no tomorrow. No, that did not happen. But what did happen was a better sense of serving that town, which has continued to grow and grow. The churches have actually got healthier. And do you know what happens when the churches get healthier or holier? The society that we serve gets closer to God because only the church, nobody else on the planet, only the church has got this commission to be Christ's witnesses on this planet. Yes? Only the church. That's our commission. However we go about doing it, whatever labels we stick on us, but it's only the church of Jesus Christ that's got his imprimatur to be his witnesses. And that witness has grown and grown in that town. So there's real outcomes from doing this. When we learn the lessons of what are the stories or issues currently, right now, shaping us. The good stuff, because we want that to grow. And the bad stuff that punches it, we want to put an end to it. So that we can be refreshed and renewed in mission. It always comes out in mission. Maybe just one last thing. I know what time it is. That Desmond Tutu connection. When he went on to become the Archbishop of Cape Town, it coincided uh, with Nelson Mandela coming out of 20-odd years of uh, imprisonment on Robben Island, and like many of you possibly, I too have been to his prison cell on Robben Island and prayed in it. Uh, and then came that joint commitment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is this picture you have on the left is the launch of it. Do you notice the title? Healing Our Past. Because if you don't heal your past, you're condemned to repeat it. Yeah? If you don't heal the wounds, they just go on speaking. And because Desmond Tutu had heard from that little church in Southampton uh, that we did this listening part of the program, and he could see how effective it was, he began to take notice that when Acorn started doing listening training with a lady called Anne Long, that some of you will know, he met Anne Long in the UK and invited us, Acorn that is, eventually to train all the Truth and Reconciliation Commissioners in our listening program, which we did in South Africa because they were going to be listening to horrific stories and they needed to have a disciplined heart and not to get carried away by the, the power of the emotions that no doubt they would be experiencing. So <coughs> that little church in Southampton 
In finding its own healing, sowed a big seed that flowed quite wide in the land. I list here some of the stories at the beginning of church life. I often ask churches, do you know your founding DNA? Why were you founders as a church? I know we're founded to be a witness, <clears throat> to worship, and to serve. But there are other reasons, aren't there, why churches are founded exactly where they are. And here's a, a few suggestions. <coughs> Sometimes churches are sites of holiness where God did amazing things and it became a center of pilgrimage, center of worship, and cathedrals were born. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Celtic saint called Chad, who was probably one of the very first archbishops of Canterbury. I'm looking at about 610 AD now, just a little while ago. And uh, he was actually fired from his job because he hadn't been to the right university. Uh, he'd gone to one on the island of Lindisfarne, not Rome. So they persuaded him his education was lacking, he didn't have the right degrees, and surely he shouldn't be an archbishop. He didn't put up a fight. He said, well, you're freeing me to evangelize. Thank you. I loved his spirit. And he had a remarkable gift of physical healing. And in later life, he ended up in a town called Litchfield, where people came from far and wide to receive prayer ministry. Kings would come, and rich people would come. And when he died, they built a special shrine for him. It ended up being a three-towered cathedral. <coughs> that um, cathedral congregation got stuck, and I was invited to come and do the two-restore process. And it coincided with rediscovering the lost shrine of St. Chad. And I said to this congregation, this church was founded on the healing ministry of Jesus. Do you have a healing ministry today? And they don't. They have no prayer team like you've got here today. It's like they had cut themselves off from their foundation stone and put something else in its place. And the bishop was there, a man called Jonathan Gledhill, who's an old friend. And such a good lad. We were going on to have Holy Communion. So can you imagine he's wearing his, his mitre, his cope, and his staff, all the regalia of getting ready to preside. And he took us all by surprise. Instead of going up to the high altar after the various pieces, he came down to the steps to the, where people were sitting. Without saying a word, he took his mitre off and placed it on the top of the piano. He took his cope off and put it over there. He took out his clerical uh, piece and put, it there. put his staff, put it all down. And he stood there literally in his braces and shirts with his clerical shirt slightly open. And he said, underneath all the regalia that tells you I'm a bishop, I'm a sinner. And I realized today, he said, I've only been bishop seven years, but I've only realized today that this church was founded on the healing ministry of Jesus, and I have neglected the healing ministry of Jesus, which is actually part of the problem in this church. So he said, I'm going to ask you to pray for me, that I can be a better bishop and lead this cathedral back into the healing ministry of Christ. It was such a humbling moment for that congregation. They prayed for Jonathan. He went on for another nine or ten years as the Bishop of Litchfield. 
and under God and with others alongside of him, transformed the life of that church because they healed their foundation reason, which they actually drifted miles away from. Some churches are founded by the personal agenda of the founders. Let's not beat about the bush. Some churches were built to the glorification of the person who had the money to pay for it to be built. And they have a big memorial something. And so we've put right inside the building of God, the pride of man. It's the way it was uh, back in the day. One issue in our country, which possibly might not resonate with you here, is that one on the far left, what I call the daughter church syndrome. Have you heard of something called the Industrial Revolution? Yes? Yeah? And you can date the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom to 1690, so they tell me. What is the Industrial Revolution? Uh, I'm not quite sure, but industry transformed itself. It began here. Uh, for the very first time in the United Kingdom, something began to emerge which we didn't have before, and it's called cities. Or, or big urban areas. And people who live down the countryside in small hamlets, on farms, needed jobs, so they all came into the towns which grew. Do you get the picture? In the town would be the, the, the church in the middle. And only the people who could read and write and had money uh, tended to go to that church. You had to pay for the seat you sat in, in those churches. But suddenly, they were having this flood of people coming in from the countryside. Many of them couldn't read or write. They were all hard workers, I'm sure. And they didn't want these people coming into their services. They wanted them to be Christians, of course, but not to sit at our table. So they built them a church for themselves. And they usually built it on the other side of the railway tracks that were bringing the increasing number of people into the town. Let me make this a domestic scene for you. Imagine you've got a family, but there are some members of your family. You want them to live according to your principles and values, but you won't let them sit at the same meal table. But you build them a meal table of their own across the street somewhere. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But we did this to thousands of churches in our country. We told people, we want you to worship Jesus. But not here. Be like having an assistant pastor of Bethlehem Church. When new people arrive and you say to them, I'm really pleased you're seeking Jesus, but just go and seek him somewhere else, would you? Can you imagine the feeling of rejection? And a lot of these new churches had a spirit of defiance and rejection shaping them. Because if the main church to which they're connected was, say, a Catholic church. They'd become evangelical. Nothing wrong with being evangelical, but they chose to be evangelical in order to tell the main church, who needs you? It was founded on defiance, so they had an evangelical defiance. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with being evangelical, but it's shaped sometimes by this kind of issue. Do you understand that? And part of the work I've done is to help churches keep the gospel alive but set it free from being attached to this kind of old attitude of defiance, because it's all about pain and rejection. And so all churches have their founding 
reasons. And sometimes it's a good idea to say, why is our church where it is today? We're here to worship and witness and serve, but other other agenda it might be interesting to look at. And to conclude, almost there. Still staying with Desmond Tutu, as you can probably see one of my heroes uh, in faith. The concluding part, the exhortation part of this audit is he or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And when we do the work you're going to do after coffee time, I'm going to invite you to get into small groups. And I've got some questions which you should have a sheet that was in your room, hopefully, uh, of the questions we've worked out uh, over a period of years, actually, to get them into the shape I feel uh, that works best. You're really putting into practice, you're incarnating this very verse. Because I think when we listen to the people in the church share what they think are the important stories and issues in the life of their church, you will hear the Holy Spirit speaking. It's not just their own individuality. It's what the Spirit places inside of them. And we get a clearer picture than perhaps we had before. This is a very challenging passage from Mark's Gospel, the opening two verses. Let me read it to you. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones. What a great building this is. Do you see all these buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's a pretty negative reaction, isn't it? <laughs> I'm shown around Bethlehem Church on Thursday by Bente. It wouldn't be nice for me, would it, Bente, if you said, this is our church for us. And I said, see this building? Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. <laughs> Maybe that's your secret ambition, that it will fall down and you'll get the money from the insurance company that you can build. And I have no idea. But it's a pretty negative response, isn't it? Because the temple back in the day of Jesus was a fantastic building. Okay, it had been funded by Herod. It hasn't, wasn't even completed, actually, because it was such an opulent building. Amazing in size. <clears throat> Nothing of which hardly remains at all. But back in Jesus' day, it would be the, I don't know what, is, is it the Shard that we have in London? Um, the Empire State Building? Whatever's your big building of choice, it would have been the outstanding, literally, building on the horizon in Jerusalem. So why the negative response? When the disciples say it's a brilliant building, isn't it great? We worship here. I think the answer is quite simple. It's not because he doesn't like the architecture. It's not nothing to do with the shape and contours. It's actually to do with what use have you made of it? What's gone on inside of it? What are the principal stories of the inn? Of course, it's got a long history has it not, of rejecting the holiness of God and reducing itself just to performance rituals. And because it's founded on the rejection of God, it's incapable, impossible for it to stand as a serving place. So he prophesies what did take place in the outcome. This will all be destroyed. It won't be here. And in fact, 
just racing ahead in the closing minutes of this session, two minutes left. Uh, there is a liturgy in the Bible has only one express goal and function, and that's to heal the place of ministry to be the place of ministry. You know it as Yom Kippur. And now embarking on a very quick summary for a minute of one of my favorite books in the Bible. Are you looking glum now? It's okay, so I'm going to take a little while. And that's the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> because Leviticus, as well as the book of Numbers, are the only two books in the Bible that don't just talk about the healing of people, they talk about the healing of places. you find that there. So here's the piece. Leviticus 16, verse 1, starts with this. Okay. Okay. Only verse. You don't need to look it up, Mark. Leviticus um, chapter 16 begins with this phrase. After the death of Nadab and Abihu. What does that mean? This is going to be part of the teaching I'm doing tonight. But basically, it's about the ministry that went wrong inside the building made the building spiritually redundant and in order to repair that redundancy and restore the function of the place itself the place itself needed healing so as you move through the rest of Leviticus 16 you have a detailed description of you will make atonement for that place of ministry the holy place you will make atonement for the altar of sacrifice, which is outside the building. You will make atonement for the table of showbread, which is just inside the doorway. All the places where ministry takes place, you will renew them. You won't take them for granted. You will restore their power and effect. Because what went wrong needs to be attended to, even though it happened before your time. Because what you do always affects the place you do it in, doesn't it? Yes? yes? You can go into a church that's been prayed in, <coughs> lovingly uh, prayed in, and even non-Christians will say, it's real peace here. Mm-hmm. It's not because it's the peak traffic's gone, and it's quiet on the street. Some, something about the place and the presence of the place, isn't it? Where people feel a sense of peace because it's been prayed in. Or you can go to a place that's been constantly pained. I remember listening to a radio broadcast of Pope John, um, <coughs> John Paul II going to Auschwitz <coughs> in Poland to celebrate the Mass. And the thing about Auschwitz, so I'm told, because I've never been myself, is it's totally silent. Because death walks the ground. So many people died here horrifically. It's been cleaned up. There's even a convent there. But it's silent. And the Pope celebrates the Mass just outside the walls of the convent, looking at the remains of Auschwitz. You can imagine this. And I'm listening to it. This is 1978. And as he's doing the commentary, he comes to that place in the Holy Communion, which we call the, the moment of fraction, just to give you a bit of liturgy. And if you don't know what fraction is, it's where the priest or the pastor takes that big round wafer and breaks it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My body is broken for you. Uh, and it's the representation of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Apparently when the Pope did this, 
suddenly, for the first time in over 30 years at Auschwitz, all the birds in the air began to sing like that, in deafening sound. In fact, the commentator, who's a lady, uh, just started laughing and crying at the same time. It was like death and the voice of death had been shut up by the explosion of creation coming alive again. Don't you wish that people had the same spiritual awareness as birds sometimes? Because this is a symbolic or sacramental representation of what happened on Calvary. That the power of Jesus' death is more powerful than the death of anybody else. Yes? That's one of the aspects of Calvary I love. The power of the death of Christ is stronger than the power of anybody else's death. That's why he can shut death and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Because of Calvary. And this representation speaks into a land that had been soaked in death and violence of a horrific kind. And it's like creation's been waiting for its wake-up call. The place that people used to visit and say it's just dead, deadly quiet, suddenly is regrowing. Not erasing the past, but triumphing over it. Same in churches. God wants to come and renew our churches so that we can break out of any of the confines we feel we're in and continually move into that place of flourishing. Okay, uh, I mean, we're in coffee time now, but just to conclude, for Sunday night, <clears throat> when I do this process in a local church, I always conclude with what I call a service of blessing and renewal, which is why I do teaching on the ministry of blessing. And one of the things God has taught me is that when we've gone through the learning of the stories and taking omission about them and praying through them, is we actually go around the church itself and we bless the places. We do the Leviticus 16 piece in a Christian context. We use holy water and anointing oil and we bless the ministry of your church to flourish more in the way that God wants it to. It's usually a very positive time, very encouraging time. I hope you can be there. It's just a one-hour service that we're going to have. Let's break for coffee, shall we, and be prepared to come back and do your work.